Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Another episode, another book recommendation. This time, Cameron and I will be discussing a book not because I wrote it, but because of who it's about. The book is called The City for God, and it's a collection of essays in honor of Tim Keller, published recently by Square Halo Books. I contributed a piece about the influence of Tim Keller, and that influence is what we'll try to unpack for you in this episode. My wife has a framed photo of Tim Keller on her desk, a white elephant gift that has long outlived the intended irony. It remains so long in residence that I finally had to unearth a picture of myself as a counterweight. I set it beside Tim's, my frame overlapping his ever so slightly. The reason she was given that gift, and the reason it stuck around so long, is that Tim Keller is my wife's favorite pastor. She's told me this repeatedly, though there was no need to spell it out. I can't count the number of times I've heard her on the phone dispensing Keller sermons to friends in crisis, the way other church ladies prescribe essential oils. You need to listen to the struggle for love, she'll say, and then we'll discuss it. Or, I think you'd better go back to the Lord of the Wine. Or she'll call me over to listen to a clip from the lecture series Keller did with Edmund Clowney on preaching in a postmodern context. Some bit of advice or insight she thinks I need to hear. As I said, Keller is her favorite pastor. Perhaps I should mention that I am a pastor too. Well, what I've just been reading to you are the opening paragraphs of an essay that I contributed recently to a book of essays written in honor of Tim Keller, who is, in fact, my wife Lori's favorite pastor. In this episode of The Commentary, we're going to be talking about that essay, about that collection of essays, and about the influence of Tim Keller in general. Cameron, Can you remember when the first time was that you encountered Tim Keller? Yes, I, I was quite young. In fact, I I think I was still in middle school and my dad was reading a copy of the prodigal God and he had got it from a friend and they were both talking about it. And I remember my dad talking to me about it a little bit and I didn't read it until much later until I was, I think a sophomore in high school. That was the first of his books that I read, but I remember hearing about it way back then. My first time was in a Sunday school class, and this was, oh, at my first Presbyterian church. The title of the Sunday school class was The Gospel and the City. And I have to say, I was really puzzled by that combination of things. I was unfamiliar with that way of thinking, and 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 really had no idea what to expect. And that experience was eye-opening. It was kind of my first introduction to like one aspect of Keller's influence, which of course is that focus on church planting and on the life of the city and kind of the mission of Christians in this life of exile to look to the flourishing of the world around us. I had unknowingly been exposed to Keller's writing before that. 
I had no idea, but he had contributed an essay to a collection that I cherished called It Was Good, Making Art to the Glory of God. And that was one of those early books, like another anthology, The Christian Imagination, which for me was very valuable in my grad school experience and afterwards as I kind of pursued my own artistic formation. And so I had read him without knowing who he was, but this Sunday school class was sort of my first direct introduction to Tim Keller. And it probably, I don't know, it took a little while before I truly grasped the, I guess the scope of his influence. And, and yeah, so over time, through, you know, Lori's listening to all of his sermons and recommending them to uh, hearing him speak to leading Bible studies that uh, he had produced. And, and of course, to hearing, I can't tell you how many pastors re-preach his prodigal son <laughs> sermon, mm-hmm. you know, oh, like, yeah. <laughs> which is always a fun thing to, to realize, wait a second, I know what sermon this is going to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, it's, it would be hard, I think, to name a figure who has had more influence on our denomination, the Presbyterian church in America and on, you know, I guess the contemporary church at large, you know, the, the only person I think who comes close would be R.C. Sproul. Uh, whose influence in the church is you know, just as profound, if not more so, but maybe outside the church less so. Yeah. Well, I'd love to get to your essay in a little bit, but I'm curious if if you would say Keller influenced your trajectory toward the PCA as well, or if that's sort of a coincidence. I guess it's, a well, I mean, it's, let's say pro- providential. I mean, not, <laughs> there are no coincidences, but, but um I was already in before that introduction. I had already attended a, a reformed seminary and, and, you know, it was, was already reading Bavink and that sort of thing. And so uh, R.C. Sproul really was kind of my gateway in like for a lot of uh, people like me in the nineties who were discovering reformed theology, Ligonier and, and, and his influence was, was, just profound. And so my coming to the PCA was really a consequence of that and my experience at Westminster. Mm. And so it was when I was here that I, I discovered Tim Keller, but, but I will say that that is a little more complex because I think people influenced by him influenced my decision, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I often tell the story about my first seminary class where, you know, I was a Baptist deacon at a reformed seminary expecting constantly to argue about infant baptism. And when I finally confronted the professor about why he wouldn't argue with me, his answer was so disarming in his just expression of his desire to sort of help me understand more. And it wasn't about, you know, 
tearing down my beliefs. It was about raising me higher up the mountain of understanding. And, and I realized in that moment, this guy has a profound confidence in the truth of what he's saying. And I'm accustomed to leaders who have a profound insecurity and therefore are constantly arguing with you and constantly sort of badgering you into agreement. And here was a guy who was so confident that he could afford to be winsome. And so I think that let's say like the, the aroma of Tim Keller was already in the room. I just didn't know the source <laughs> at that point. Well, that sounds a lot like Keller in my view, you know, somebody that's so confident that they can afford to be winsome. Right. You know, I, when I was in high school, I, he was one of the few pastors whose sermons I just wanted to listen to. And of course, back then you could just, well, as you still can download them online right? and I would upload them to my old iPod and listen to them as I mowed the yard or whatever. And man, probably listened to dozens and dozens of those sermons like Lori. Right. And, and I think I had a few whose names I had memorized as well and sent off to friends and man, these are amazing. And it was, it, it, it did just felt like he was so confident that he wasn't trying to defend anything. And yet he was, and yet he was being winsome at it at the same time. You know, it's hard to describe, but I think anyone who, who listens to him preach in particular understands something about this man. That's just very compelling. I think like one way of expressing it might be that there is an absence of rhetoric. Um, it, it's actually one of the reasons why it was Laurie who listened to his sermons and not me at first, <laughs> because to me, they always seemed simplistic. I knew the guy was intelligent, but he was stating things so simply. And, and I just, you know, I wanted longer sentences. I wanted, you know, subtleties and, and that sort of thing. And there's something about the willingness to restrain yourself to not use the the rhetorical pyrotechnics to cover the gaps in your argument mm -hmm. that is actually really daring and it showcases the 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 scope of knowledge that that he possesses because there were a lot of things, Lori and I will have this conversation where, you know, she listens to Keller say something and, and she's like, I know you say the same thing. It's like, sure. But if I say it, it's like the one thing I know about that. And I try to say it as elegantly as I can so that you don't try to get around the corners, right? And, and ask the second question. He gives it to you, wanting you to kind of follow on to the next thing. And I think that's the, the beauty of, of listening to him, he walks you through a thought process, right? And kind of helps you see sort of, you could go this way or you could go that way. But if you go this way, this follows. If you go that way, that follows, you know? And, and so I think even just in his, in the simplicity of his style, there's a kind of um, a winsomeness, if you will, like a, a reluctance to impose on you rhetorically that I've always appreciated even though I do struggle to, to, to emulate him in that way. Well, it seems important to understand Keller in his context as well. Obviously, 
a hugely successful church planter in Manhattan of all places. How do you think that influenced his ministry? It's a good question. Um, I have a tendency as a novelist to psychoanalyze, you know, and, and to mm. psychologize things, uh, which I don't want to do here. But I, I do think that that setting probably brought to the forefront, or, or at least um, in that setting, his intellectual gifts would be of more value than they might be in a different setting. You know, I remember in Louisiana as a kid, I was enrolled by my Christian school in a preaching competition. Like all the schools would get together and compete and preaching was one of the competitions we had. And so you will be glad to know that I did get the blue ribbon first place in preaching. However, one of the judges gave a critique of my sermon he said that it was too intellectual, not nearly emotional enough. And I, as an arrogant young person, thought, to me, that sounds perfect. <laughs> right. You know, if anything, I would like even less emotion than, than that. But, but it was clear to me that maybe the, the, the way I was wanting to speak wasn't necessarily going to connect with the people in that context. Mm -hmm. I think in, in Keller's ministry, you have a good match between his gifts and the people who need to hear the gospel and need to hear it in a way that he can articulate it, that, you know, not everyone can. Mm -hmm. And so I think that really is a great example of, again, providence that God matching the, the, the place in the man and possibly the, the times as well. But he also benefits from, in some sense, the caricature of modern Christianity as being anti-intellectual, as being closed-minded. Uh, and so there's, a, there's something really disarming about a Christian who not only knows the philosophers you've read, but seems to have read them more. Yeah. Uh, who yeah. is able to quote, you know, your favorite texts, but also C.S. Lewis. And, you know, so I think there's, there's, by playing against the type of the caricature, that's also part of the, the, the thing that, I don't know, that I admire, mm -hmm. that, that I find compelling about his influence, that in a sense, he's one of those people that gave a generation of Christian intellectuals permission to be that way to talk that way to care about those things and to think that you might be able to bring it all together might be valuable to your witness to have read the things that you've read and to have thought about the things that you thought about i want to say that there's another side of keller too it's not opposed to his intellectual side, but I guess I, I'm thinking in terms of his books right now. So you have The Reason for God, which was kind of what you're getting at there. This, this very learned, articulate defense of the Christian faith. But then I think of, say, 
uh, the prodigal God or, well, I'll just, yeah, I'll just leave it there. I, that book to me puts forward his, this very compelling articulation of the gospel, I guess, you know, and, and I feel like that was perhaps the most influential thing that Keller ever offered to me was just a new way of seeing the gospel. And maybe it was just, he just presented the gospel and it just clicked for me. You know, that's how the spirit worked. But I feel like he's, he's had a way of talking about it that kind of freed me from the two extremes of, you know, in, in that book, for example, legalism on the one hand, relativism or yeah, relativism on the other hand, and kind of paving this new way to think about a life with God through Jesus Christ. And that comes through in lots of his other books. I'm thinking of the meaning of marriage, which was also so helpful for Jenny and I, I mean, incredibly helpful. We read it when we were engaged and, and it's so rooted in the gospel, which was the surprising thing. I just wanted some marriage advice, you know, like tell me what I should and shouldn't do, but this is all about Jesus and how that makes a huge difference. Could go on and on. Like, you well, know, we've so talked many. about his book on prayer yeah. on the commentary yeah. before, and that's the same where you're expecting, um, you know, here's a popular writer who's sort of writing on a lot of different topics. We're probably going to get something not super insightful, but sort of basic. And, and it's anything but that, you know, it, it's very insightful mm-hmm. and, probably the the best book on prayer written you know in the last 10 15 years mm-hmm. to recommend to anyone and i think that's you know the, the the just the interesting combination because he does have great insights he's really good i think at um processing and collating a lot of what's out there but he does it all with a pastoral mindset. And so at the end of the day, whether he's doing apologetics or, you know, cultural criticism or, or, you know, more practical, this is how you should plant churches. All of it comes from a sort of pastoral set of concerns. I will say though, that because of that, it is really easy, I think, to be dismissive of the, like the real, um, I would say, like the real genius of his influence. And I think that if I compared how I saw Keller's influence when I first encountered it and what it meant to someone of my generation, to the way that I see some younger people who've kind of grown up with, with like the post New York times bestseller Keller, where everybody knows who you're talking about when you refer to Tim Keller, um, is that I think it's easy to take a lot of things for granted that really shouldn't be. Um, or not to appreciate really the, the, the kernel of it. I, I talk about this in the essay, but Laurie and I had this kind of epiphany where we were reading through Calvin's Institutes together and it was kind of a, I would read it aloud while she was doing, you know, cooking or, you know, whatever. I would kind of, I don't know, not force the institutes on her, but, but, you know, like, like orate a little bit. And then we'd read some and then kind of talk about what we were reading. And she kept doing what was to me a really annoying thing. 
where I would read her, you know, a good paragraph or two of Calvin. And then she would say, well, I think the way Keller would say that is this. And she kept doing it. Like, like literally every point that Calvin made, she could counter with how Keller would say that. And, and it dawned on me at a certain point, wait a second. Like I've never seen anybody talk about this, but I think a way of understanding what Keller does is he is taking Calvin and translating him into the 21st century idiom. He's adding things, but, but maybe less than you think, right? <laughs> Even the psychological insights, if you go back to the institutes, they're there. I think he has really sublimated the influence of Calvin and the Reformed tradition and like all of the years of study have gone into shaping this approach so that what seems to be disarmingly simple and to some people very contemporary, like talking about philosophers and psychologists and stuff like that, if if you're reading your institutes, you'll be surprised how closely what Keller says tracks with what Calvin says. And so do you think that these younger people that you're referencing don't see that or they just don't appreciate it or or something else? Well, that's a good question. I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I think that we are kind of in a cultural moment where a lot of younger evangelical and post-evangelical people are like reassessing where we've come from. And and one of the problems with reassessing, especially when you're younger, is that you don't always have the best grasp of the project that you're critiquing. And so you're, you're not necessarily wrong in your instincts, but you may be wrong in your application or sort of in, in, in that way. So, you know, listeners might be familiar with the, the negative world hypothesis that has been bandied around recently. And uh, there are you know, people who feel that Tim Keller and others like him are too uh, winsome for this culture, which is no longer neutral towards Christianity, but is now negative towards Christianity. And as a result, we cannot emulate the example of Tim Keller. It is now time to have a new way of connecting with the culture around us. If you go back and read the original article that, that proposed this, it's interesting because like the big picture isn't wrong, but all of the particular examples seem not to illustrate the point. Like, like you'd have to not know a lot about some of those people to place them in the categories where they're placed. And yet, like a lot of critiques, there's something there, you know, there, it does reflect the way a lot of people are feeling right now. Um, I don't know how much you've followed that critique, but it's been interesting to me to, to see, you know, working on a, a, an essay in honor of the legacy of Tim Keller at a time when you see people saying, well, maybe 
you know, that was great for yesterday, but, but not for tomorrow. Yeah. It's difficult because I think at any given point, you can point to where you're at and say, well, things are changing now, or, you know, this, things are not what they used to be. And, and maybe that's true. You know, I think in America right now, in many ways, that is true culturally, politically, religiously, perhaps there's a lot going on and I don't want to deny that, but to point at someone like Keller and say what you did doesn't work anymore just seems maybe premature. Like, well, one, we don't know that, you know, and two, it, it just seems to, it seems to discredit the success in, you know, in scare quotes that he has had. I mean, it's been amazing the things he's been able to accomplish. And I, I guess I want to respect that and not, not discount all the tremendous work that God really has done through him, not just Tim Keller himself. Yes. I think there, there's a Trevin Wax did a series of essays for the gospel coalition. And and we can link to these in the show notes that to me are a very nuanced treatment, a respectful treatment of the concerns, but sort of correct the record historically and, Mm. and, and, and make for a much better presentation of, of, sort of where we've come from, where we're at, and and what are the questions we should be thinking about for the future. And so uh, a lot of people who've been caught up in this, this, this online debate, I've been recommending that as a resource to them. But I think fundamentally, there's a category mistake there, because part of the problem of like commercial Christianity, right? That that once we lost our connection to historical ecclesiology and, and kind of told ourselves church is something we invent, um, that necessitates a constant reinvention in relationship to the culture around us, right? And so whenever things quote unquote change, almost the first note that sounded is how we must change in response to these new changes. That's not new, it's not even generational. I mean, it's, it's a constant thing happening in the evangelical church that, that it, that constant need for reinvention. So this to me is another of those kinds of calls. What it mistakenly assumes though, is that the reason that Keller and people influenced by him engage with the world the way they do is because they think it works. That the reason why you would, you know, patiently bear witness and testify and, and seek the good of the, the world around you is that somehow that will win them over and that it will be more effective than being some anti-intellectual, angry burn it all down kind of fundamentalist. And the thing is, that's not the reason why. The reason why at the most fundamental level is that to pursue the the mission of Jesus, you need to use the means of Jesus. Right? That that as Christians, there are certain things for us which are off the table we can't answer evil with evil and we can't answer fire with fire. Um, 
there doesn't come a time for us when when we can say, well, it's it's time to fight dirty because they fight dirty. Instead, we're constantly being called to this path of self-sacrifice, of Christ-like care for others, even if they have contempt for us, to bless those who curse us, right? That's part of the Christian calling. And so I think as long as you're looking at at this sort of intellectual engagement, this patient and winsome testimony for Christ as a strategy, you're misunderstanding what it is. In Keller's case, it's a it's an approach that has borne a lot of fruit. But if you listen to his interview with Mike Cosper in a bonus episode to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, it becomes clear quickly as Keller talks about it that there wasn't like a strategy. He didn't adopt a strategy in order to thrive in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. That's not what happened. And, and the results were as unexpected to him as you know they, they are to anyone who first hears the story. So I don't think, you know, Keller is the way he is because that's what works in Manhattan, or at least that's what did work until 2014 in Manhattan. Um, There were other reasons for that. And so for us at Grace, a church very influenced by Tim Keller, um, I would say the same thing is true, that our approach to the world is not a strategy. It's not designed to get us a fair hearing. It's not designed to make us seem uh, nice compared to the the mean Christians or you know, anything like that. It's it's merely a question of us trying to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Yeah, right. It, it is us trying to do Jesus things, but in Jesus ways. Mm. And honestly, that's the greatest legacy of Tim Keller's example in my life is that commitment to do those things regardless of the outcome, you know, regardless of the criticism. Well, I've got to know what your favorite Tim Keller book is before we're done. If you had to pick one, either your favorite or, or most influential. Yeah. So I, this is a, a little bit of a deep cut, but for me, it's not one of the, the popular books. It is, I'll, I'll say it's Center Church, which is the, you know, the church plant ecclesiology book. Yeah. But honestly, it is the spiral bound, <laughs> photocopied conglomeration of stuff that preceded Center Church. The Redeemer Church Planting Handbook, which... I got my hands on in the early days of our church's planting uh, before we, you know, had a church planter on the scene before we knew anything. I got this, this thing somebody sent me and I flipped through it and it was full of, you know, charts, handouts, articles, no real sort of explanation for any of it. I think it was all meant to be explained to you in a, in a one-on-one context or something. 
And I just did the best I could to make sense of what I was reading. And, and it was profoundly influential. And so, you know, ironically, <laughs> of all of the, the great contributions he's made, that is the one that I think I will always be most grateful for. <laughs> and, uh, I, I don't recommend trying to hunt that thing down right. just get a copy of center church and it's everything that, that you need to know is, is in there. But for me, it was, it was that. Yeah. I've mentioned a few books already and it's really hard to pick one, but I, you know, I think maybe the most influential or the one that I always return to at least is uh, King's cross. Yeah. Jesus, the King, which mm-hmm. is really just kind of his commentary on Mark, the gospel mm-hmm. of Mark. And so many insights just blew my mind as I was reading that as a college student. And then particularly at the very end, he has this section on the resurrection, just kind of, you know, probing the hope of the resurrection and, you know, asking you, what if this was true? You know, what if this really, and I think he brings in Tolkien or Lewis or something. And it was just like the perfect combination for me then. And it was so exciting. I remember the first time I read it, I just, you know, underlined it, highlighted it, tore the page out. Like I, I need everyone to read this. And so just one of those moments where you remember exactly where you were when you read it and what was going on. So really thankful for, for all of his books, but especially that one. Yeah. So I mean, we've thrown out some book ideas and I'll just mention a few other things. Uh, Lori has been listening to the questioning Christianity podcast that is based on events that Keller did, I think in 2019, where he would give a presentation to an audience of non-Christians and then receive questions from the audience, which he would do his best to answer. Um, If you've ever seen the Reason for God uh, video series, it's a similar format. You know, instead of him talking about his book, he put together a panel of various kinds of of non-Christians and then talked through the topics of the book with them. And they were able to question him. And And uh, I was always inspired by the confidence it takes and the humility to do something like that. And And so this is something similar, but on a larger scale. So if you're wanting to kind of listen to how Keller talks about the Christian faith in an audience like that, that is a fantastic source. I mentioned already... Um, interview with Mike Cosper, which we'll link in the show notes as well. Uh, that's also kind of a good kind of overview of, of his work as well. I mean, there's, there's probably no bad place to start. And I guess I ought to, to recommend as well, if you don't already have a copy of the collection of essays, uh, The City for God, Essays Honoring the Work of Tim Keller, I would highly recommend that book. It's published by Square Halo Books. And Square Halo is really a fascinating publisher. It's run by a man named Ned Bustard, who is an elder in the Presbyterian Church in America. He's a visual artist and has a longtime commitment to the arts, creativity, all of that. That anthology I mentioned earlier, it was good. Ned edited that as well and published it with Square Halo. And so For several years, Ned has been working behind the scenes to make this book happen. And the idea was to put together a secret book of essays 
that could be given to Tim Keller as a surprise, you know, that, that honor his legacy. And so over, you know, the course of time, Ned just contacted a variety of people. And so if you look at the book, we've have uh, a number of contributors, Russell Moore, contributed the forward uh, Sean Michael Lucas, who has written some, some great stuff on the history of our denomination contributed a chapter of Scott Saul's uh, Dennis Hack has one uh, William Edgar, who is a Westminster professor and a really interesting guy has a, a section in there as well. Uh, a lot of other great writers who have contributed and then me, uh, <laughs> there in that that first section so so yeah it it's it's a fantastic book i think because it speaks to the breadth of that influence so many different people who have been impacted by it and so um i'll put a link to the book there and just encourage you to to grab a copy and and hopefully enjoy these essays Uh, we got a an email from tim he and kathy were just packing up as he was leaving the hospital where he had just undergone a round of treatment for cancer and the books arrived then and so he he wrote a very gracious note of thanks acknowledging that and uh, that was a sweet gesture you know for for him and so yeah well thanks mark for your your contribution certainly and uh thank god for tim keller Thanks for listening to The Commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to The Commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsuefalls.org.